And I was thinking very intently about a trilogy because I wanted to wrap up these books. It's like, I don't want to do these square books forever. I feel like this book, it's grown out of the last book and all these books talk to each other and I wanted to wrap it up. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. I want to give a big thank you to Sour Pepper and Kinetic Bear, two listeners who left a review on Apple Podcasts this past week and pushed me past the 200 review mark. Sour Pepper wrote, I never miss an episode. I absolutely love this show. And Kinetic Bear wrote, I don't listen to every episode, but I love how Jay breaks down the interviews. It's great to hear stories from people with so many backgrounds and industries too. Well, whether you listen to every episode of the show or not, thank you for tuning in to this episode here today, and thanks for leaving those ratings and reviews. Creative Elements is starting to climb the charts on Apple Podcasts in a meaningful way, so if you're an iPhone user, even if you listen to the show on a different app, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps me, and by extension, it helps you by producing a better and better show. You know, there are just a few books in my life that were so impactful that I remember where I was when I was reading them. One of those books is Steal Like an Artist, 10 Things Nobody Told You About Being Creative by Austin Kleon. I was sitting in an Airbnb in Austin, Texas during South by Southwest in 2017, which is kind of a cool coincidence because Austin lives in Austin, Texas, actually. And this book was incredible. I was three months into writing a blog post every day and less than a month away from quitting my job at a startup. I was hungry for life as a creator, but I was still very, very lost in terms of where to go next. I still had a lot of hangups and imposter syndrome and wasn't sure if I could actually make it on my own. Steal Like an Artist with about 150 small pages of text, photos, and illustration helped me build my confidence ahead of taking the entrepreneurial leap. So it's really fun to share with you today's interview with the author of Steel Like an Artist, Austin Kleon. And Austin's career as an author begins in a pretty unexpected place, a public library in Cleveland, Ohio. The library was a stroke of really, really good luck because, you know, it didn't pay a lot. I don't even remember what it paid, but you could work 20 hours a week and have health insurance and and then do whatever you wanted for the rest of the time. So to me, it was like just a magic. I was like, yes, this is wonderful. One of my bosses said being a librarian is like being a classroom teacher, a police officer, a social worker, (laughs) a researcher, and just all these things. Because you just, depending on who walks through the door at the library, your job changes from minute to minute. What I really wasn't expecting is how much the job would teach me. We'll hear all about what that job taught Austin as an aspiring author, but by virtue of only being a 20-hour-per-week job, Austin had plenty of time to actually start writing. His first published book is a book of poetry called Newspaper Blackout. The book was published in 2010, and it's really an incredibly unique form of poetry. Instead of writing with a blank page, Austin used pages from newspapers and a permanent marker to eliminate the words he didn't need. 
That book wasn't exactly a breakout success, but as you'll hear in the interview, it did directly lead to the creation of Austin's famous Steal Like an Artist. See, a lot of people think Steal Like an Artist is my first book, and it's like, no, actually, Steal Like an Artist is a second book, and it's a second chance book. It's like, I never thought I would write another book again. So Steal Like an Artist was like my shot at doing a real, you know, in my mind, in quotation marks, a real book and like really going for it. Today, Austin has published four books, including Steal Like an Artist in 2012, Show Your Work in 2014, and Keep Going in 2019. He's been blogging and writing a newsletter for close to two decades and built an audience of hundreds of thousands of followers across Twitter and Instagram. So in this episode, we talk about how newspaper blackout led to Steal Like an Artist, when he knows it's time to write another book, the pros and cons of self-publishing, why Austin doesn't believe he's business savvy, and the role of luck in Austin's ability to make a living as a full-time writer. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. Tag me, say hello, and let me know that you're listening. And if you're not already in our listeners community on Facebook, I'd love for you to join. And now, let's talk with Austin. It's weird when you talk to librarians, librarians get very defensive. <laughs> Real librarians have library degrees, master's degrees. And so if you don't have a master's degree, you're not a real librarian in the eyes of a lot of librarians, even though you, know, you do pretty much the same work when you're working the reference desk. But the reference desk was this wonderful place for me to be because I suddenly, all of a sudden, I'd never worked in a bookstore. I'd never really paid attention I always wanted to be a writer, but I never really paid attention to what people read. <laughs> interesting. Okay, That's, and, uh, this is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and so when you work in a suburban American public library, I mean, you chase down enough Danielle Steele and James Patterson novels to realize, wait a minute, like books do things for people. Like books on the whole, people read because they want, they either want it to be entertaining or useful. And if you could be both, that's even better. So, you know, a lot of my job at the library was just, you know, it, it was also helping people. It was also thinking like about what people need and how I can get it for them. And it was just a really formative experience. I'm not going to say I was a good librarian or I was a good employee, but that job taught me a ton. And the beautiful thing about the job, again, 20 hours a week, three, three days a week, I think, is when I was working. So the rest of the time, I was hanging out in the apartment trying to write or blog. And that's when I came up with those, with those newspaper blackout poems that you mentioned. So it sounds like you sought out this job, or at least saw the opportunity for this job to give you the time and space to explore your other interests. It wasn't, it wasn't just like, I'm lazy, I only want to work 20 hours. It was, I want to preserve some of my time to yeah. do some of these things. No, because I had a wonderful professor uh, named Stephen Bauer at Miami, and he told me, look, if you want to be a writer, don't go to grad school right away. Because a lot of writers, they've only been to school, just like a lot of American kids. They've only been to school, so they've never been out in the world. They've never had like an actual, they've never lived outside of school. And so Stephen told me, he's like, if you want to be a writer, you should not go to grad school. Don't do what your mom wants you to do. <laughs> go just get a job and write. 
and see what happens. And it was the best advice that, you know, anybody at that point had given me because when you're out on your butt outside of college, all of a sudden you don't have a built-in audience anymore. You don't, you know, when you're in college, it's like your professors pay, uh, paid to read your writing <laughs> and your classmates are paying to read your writing. Yeah. And it's this wonderful artificial environment, but it is artificial. And then you get out of college and you realize nobody gives a crap what you write about. And that's terrifying, but it's also liberating because the minute I got out of college, all of a sudden I realized nobody's watching anyway, so I got to do what's genuinely interesting to me. And that's when those weird poems showed up because mm. at the time it's like no one would have taken me seriously if I had showed up to creative writing class with those, you know. But I put them on a blog and all of a sudden people are like, oh, these are kind of interesting. I'm going to get to that in a second, but what, what I think is really interesting about this advice and your experience with it, I would have assumed that the benefit of going and getting the job as opposed to staying in school is that you're starting to expand your experience and actually understand what the world is like versus this kind of artificial environment of the university. Did you, did you see that too, or is that secondary to what you're saying? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're out in the world, you're paying bills, you're taking walks, you're looking, you're seeing babies and old people. You know, no one ever talks about that when you're in college or when you're in grad school or whenever. When do you ever see a baby or an old person? It's just all these like, you know, I mean, like in college, it's mostly 18 to 22 year olds. Talk about a bubble, you know, it's this other than your professors. And, you know, that's if you have a very, you know, you live in a dorm and you're whatever. But for me, when I, it was the first time I ever had my own apartment and, you know, I was living with my girlfriend. We were living in sin at the time, you know? And so it was like, we took these great walks and like Harvey Picar lived in my neighborhood and I'd see him out with Joyce. And like, there was a bookstore around the corner and just, uh, there was a big, like almost a nursing home, not a nursing. It was like a retirement community type building right across the street from us. So there'd be all these old like Russian people hanging out in Cleveland and like, I used to sit on my balcony and draw people. You know, it's just like being out in the world. And Cleveland is a great city for people watching. I mean, there's just <laughs> freaks and you know people all over. And in a way, I guess Cleveland was my New York City. You know, the and the New York City versus MFA discussion with writers. Yeah. Cleveland was both for me. It was somewhere <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> I read in a, a conversation you had with somebody at the Discontent. I think this is like 2014. You yeah. mentioned that it took moving to Texas for people to take your poetry seriously, though. For some reason, when you went to Texas, it was a different story. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there was something about if you said a poet in Cleveland is blacking out the newspaper, it just felt sort of, and people were like, eh. But when it when Morning Edition was like a poet in Texas is blacking out the newspaper, it, Texas has this mythology that that Cleveland doesn't have. You know, Texas Texas brings an image to your head no matter what. Like everyone around the world has an image of Texas. And if you're a poet, you're interested in images and you're you know the power of images. And so, you know, I don't think I lived in Texas 6 months before NPR was calling me a Texas poet, which was just insane to me because it was nothing I never in my wildest dreams thought of myself as being a, a Texan anything. Um, well, not back then anyway. That was like 15 years ago. So there's a certain mythology that comes with the place that is very valuable that you can borrow that I don't think is, you know, because 
And, and what's, I mean, what's really funny with me is that people will hear my twang and my voice and they'll think it's a Texas accent when it's actually a Southern Ohio accent. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know, but there was something weird about the minute I left. It was like all of a sudden, okay, there's this new, you can be this new thing now, whether you want to or not. Well, timing is kind of fickle because do you think if you would have moved to Texas a year sooner would this whole thing have worked out in the same way, you know, like, were you yeah. ready for this type of thing or was the work at that degree or was this a confluence of, of circumstances? Well, it's interesting with the poems, you know, people don't really ask me that much about the poems anymore because I've got this other trilogy. And so sometimes people forget that that book exists, newspaper blackout, the poems. It was funny. I only did like a dozen of them and then I quit for a year and then someone found that batch and blogged about it you know this is like 2007 back when people were still reading blogs you know google reader was still around and all that so i immediately was like oh, people like this i should do more of these so it was never like <laughs> you know it was always sort of like reacting to how people are reacting, you know? And so, yeah, but timing's everything. I mean, I think about that with, in terms of, you know, we moved to Austin in 2007. That's a great time to move to Austin because if you come any later than that, you know, it was already on the upswing, but about 2010 things just start blowing open in a way that's just really strange and striking. And, but yeah, it was just a great time to to make that move. And I I just continue to think contextually, if I was, you know, 10 years later, what would have happened? I don't know. Would I have been a TikToker? I don't you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. it's mind-blowing to think about. It it is interesting because my blog is 15 years old now or or more than that, 17 years old. Been doing it since 2005. So yeah, I guess it's like 16 years old. And I think now it's still around. I mean, that's the funny thing about blogs is they last forever if you keep them up. But it is weird. It's like contextually, what is it about timing and luck? You know, it's a big deal. You can't plan for it. The only thing you can do is be ready for it. You just, when the wave comes in, you surf it. After a quick break, Austin and I talk about the keynote he gave at a community college that led to Steal Like an Artist and changed his life forever, right after this. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, 
education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com science. Hey, welcome back. I started this conversation talking about Newspaper Blackout because even though it's not Austin's most popular book, it played a seminal role in a pivotal moment in Austin's life a speaking opportunity at a community college in New York. Auden had it nailed in the 50s. He said, a poet can always make more money talking about writing poetry than they can actually writing poetry. (laughs) So the thing that happened was Newspaper Blackout came out. And then off of that, you know, people were asking me to give talks here and there. And Broome Community College, bless them forever. It's part of the SUNY system and it's up in upstate they were looking for a convocation speaker. And I hadn't done a lot of speaking up until that point. So I said, well, what do you pay your speakers? And they said, this much. And I said, well, I'll do it for a thousand less. <laughs> you know, <it's laughs> That's like, not how you negotiate. It was. No, it's not how you negotiate <laughs> at all. You know, I'm 20, I don't know, 20, I'm not very old at this point. And I didn't have like a speaker's bureau or anything. I didn't know what I was doing. I had a, I was a web designer, you know, at this point. At this point, I was working for the state of Texas. I was working at UT at the School of Law and they wanted a convocation speaker. In my head, for some reason, I thought that meant a commencement speaker. Like, go out into the world, children. So I was like sort of trying to come up with this talk that I could either just, I was like 27 or 26 at the time. These kids were probably 22, you know? So it's like, what can I bestow on these, (laughs) you know, these students? It's just absurd. And they wanted a title for the talk. And I said, oh, it's called, uh, I sort of looked at my blog. I was like, what's the most interesting thing I've written recently? Oh, it's called How to Steal Like an Artist. 
That's what it's called. And I didn't have it written or anything. <laughs> it's just like, this sounds good. But I had this blog post that was like all these quotes about artists talking about stealing. And then I went on this walk with my wife and I said, you know, what do I say to these people that aren't that much younger than me? And she said, well, the best talk I ever heard at school was this lady got up in front of her class and she just had a list of 10 things that she wished she had known when she was a student. I said, that's great. I'll steal that. And that's where the talk came from. The talk went over well, but, you know, me being a sort of old millennial right on the edge of, you know, I was born in 83. So it's like, I have a little bit of that digital native to me, but not terribly. So it's kind of like, well, what happens to all this material after I give this talk that no one recorded? And so I thought, well, it would make a really cool blog post. And that's really the thing. I posted the How to Steal Like an Artist blog post, and that went viral. And this is 2011. And it became clear, like, immediately, because I started hearing from editors, it's like, this is your next book. Even though you put this book out that was a poetry book that sold okay, but, like, didn't really blow any doors down, but this is, like, the new one. So you get a second chance, this idea of being a second chance, was this the language that was told to you by the publisher? No, 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 no. That was just in the back of my head. You know, for the publisher, it's all... Uh, publishers just think, is it going to be a good book or not? You know, I mean, it's a funny thing. My, my agent would hate it if I told this story, but which makes it even more fun to tell. But, you know, Ted, uh, my agent, there was a point after Newspaper Blackout came out that I wrote him an email and I said... I just realized that I really need an agent. You know, like, this is, it, it would be good to have an agent. I realize that now. And he sent me this email back that was pleasant, but he was like, look, kid, I make money by selling books. So when you got, you better hope this book that you did on your own sells well. And if you got another idea for a book, then come see me, right? So that was like right after Newspaper Blackout came out. Well, I came to him when it was time to sell Steel Like an Artist to publishers. So it was never the second. It almost feels like, I don't know, like a band, like Nirvana puts out Bleach and then never minds the like the major label, even though that doesn't really work because my publisher Workman's independent. But it did feel like, okay, this is the pop shot. This is like, this is the chance to do a book that might have a bigger audience than, than the poetry book. Well, I kind of blew past this. You know, a lot of people who come on the show they've self-published books. Some of them have gone through a publisher and they talk about it being like a miserably difficult experience to get to the point where someone says, okay, we'll publish your book. Yeah. And you published Newspaper Blackout through a publisher. How did that happen? That was just an editor that was a year younger than me at Harper Perennial, Amy Kaplan, who she's got a different name now. She said, have you ever thought about a book? And I said, hell yeah, I've thought about a book, <laughs> Let's do it. And they sent me a contract, which, you know, really in hindsight, I should have never signed. But, you know, I had my, my mother-in-law is a lawyer and she looked over it and it seemed fine. You know, it was like, cause you know, it's a poetry book and the stakes seemed very low, but I, my feeling was always with books. When people want a book from you, they'll, they'll tell you. You know, that, that's always how I felt about it. It was, was like, it's much easier to be wanted 
than to try to sell something fresh or new. Now, you know, every writer now has the ability to grow an audience before they ever publish a book. The thing is, is that you want an audience. If you want to self-publish, you got to have an audience. And if you want to publish with a publisher, you need to have an audience. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like you're, I think the thing that I tell people now is it's like, it's both terrifying and freeing the fact that you always run your own show and it's always in your court. You are always the one doing the work. You know, I've been a published professional author for a decade now and nobody ever comes to you and says, we're going to do it for you, kid. Don't worry. We're going to make you a star. It just doesn't happen. I mean, maybe it happens to like a pop singer or something, you know, but it's never going to happen. Every person you see that's like a big deal, there's just all this work that you don't see that happened before that where they were making things happen for themselves. You know, I thought when I was younger, I'm such a genius. I'm so talented. Someone will just come out of the woodwork and say, oh, you know, here you go, kid. You know, I just I just had that stupid wishful thinking. But, you know, my agent has three things that he tells writers that I think are really, really it's really, really good advice that I try to pass on. One, get famous first. And that sounds horrible and terrible, but really what he's talking, fame is just more people knowing you than you know people. So fame can be a tiny fame too. So that's just getting known in your field. Like get known for something. That's, I would actually change it from getting famous. I'd say get known for something, you know, first. Ted second. His second piece of advice is all publishing is self-publishing. So whether you're self-publishing or whether you're going with the big five or big four now <laughs> publisher, you are the one that cares the most about your work. And you're always going to be the one that pushes it and sells it and gets it out in the world the best. And then three, the thing that Ted says that I think is even more true today than it was when he was saying it 10 years ago is you're really CEO of your own multimedia empire. To only think in terms of books is very limiting now because you have these tools available to you now where you can just do whatever. I mean, you've got the access to media now is, is stunning. You know? So it really yeah. becomes about what you want to do. But I always thought those three pieces of advice were really good. But I think the major thing is, is like, don't wait on anybody. No one's going to come and knight you. You know, no one's going to get out the sword and put it on both shoulders and say, I knight thee, you're in the club, you know? And by the time it feels like you're in the club, you don't need to be in the club. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's yeah. just, so I'm always with people, I, I always think that young people need to get sort of the best of punk rock early as they can. Not the like, oh, sell out, bleh, spit on you, punk rock, but the real sort of the kind of punk rock that Michael Azarad writes about in Our Band Could Be Your Life. These bands that got in the van and they toured and they built audiences city by city and they got addresses and built their mailing list, you know, that kind of great American, you know, it's the best of America. Punk, to me, like, 
the band on the road, that's like sort of the best of the American dream, you know, like building your audience slowly. Yeah. I feel, I feel like there's like a, there, there's a lot of analogs from music to all the online creator stuff we talk about today because they were just out there doing it, going on the road, building this mailing list. Every time they went to the city, it just got a little bit bigger. Yeah. And that's not that different than what we're doing now. It's just instead of cities, you have maybe internet communities, maybe you have these small pockets of culture. Yeah. It's really about the same. One newsletter subscriber at a time. You know, somebody tells their friend or tweets it or whatever. You know, the music's interesting for me. I'm sort of a I'm I'm sort of a wannabe. You know, music is what got me through my teenage years. I realized very early on it wasn't going to be the lifestyle for me. I wasn't going to be okay with just like being on the road and trying to entertain people, which is hilarious now because half of my job is getting up on the stage and performing for people. But music has always been an influence. And music is interesting because musicians are always the kind of canaries in the coal mine as far as media goes. Anything bad that's going to happen will happen to musicians first. And it was true mm. of streaming. It was Well, it was true of digital. It was true of Napster and all that. It was true of streaming. And it was true of the pandemic. Musicians are really the artists. They're sort of, I can't think of another art form that's really more on the edge of whatever the world is doing and they'll do it to them first. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I had that know? thought when we started to see holograms of Tupac at Coachella. I was like, this is, <laughs> this is next. Well, it is Tupac. It's Gemini season right now. I don't know when this will air, but you know, yeah, it's true. It's like, oh, the, the indignities that are put upon the passed away musician. Your your three rules from Ted, if you believe them to be true, which it sounds like you do, that number two rule of everybody is self-publishing. What is the litmus test now for someone to decide if they should go with a traditional publisher if they have the opportunity? Oh, great question. I think it has a lot to do with business goals. It just depends. It depends completely on the person. Depends on what kind of stuff you're writing. You know, for me, my books do really well by the cash register at the Mm. paper source or the, you know, urban outfitters or wherever. Now, these books have taken a hit during the pandemic because nobody's in person anymore. Yeah, so those books take a little bit of a hit. But, you know, like I'm reading a book right now on how to take better notes. And I forget the guy's name. But it's like, that's a very niche yeah. thing that most publishers probably be like, take better notes. What is that? You know, whatever. I'm sure this guy's probably sold a million copies. He's probably made a you know, fortune. The thing about self-publishing that I try to remind people is that it exists on a very wide economic spectrum. So like, for example, my two self-publishing heroes are on one side, a guy named John Porcellino. And on the other side is a guy named Edward Tufty. Now, John Porcellino has been doing this zine called King Cat for 30 years, I think. King Cat since like 19, yeah, you can tell I'm not good with, it's late afternoon. My math skills are bad but john's been doing this zine for 30 years at least it's 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 one of the greatest american comics in in my opinion john's never gotten rich off of it he you know started when he was a kid it's still got that punk buddha 
energy to it. But John now, I think he he just started a Patreon, and I think he's just starting to be able to save enough to have a reasonable like lower middle class. I, I mean, th- I, this is just from what I've seen of him and seen of his work. He's just starting to be able to like kind of have a decent living through Patreon and his subscribers to KingCat. So that's like one side of the economic spectrum. On the other side is someone like Edward Tufty. Edward Tufty was a statistician at Yale. Nobody wanted to publish his book called The Visual Display of Quantitative Information. Can you imagine? <sighs> no one wanted to publish that's that a, book. That's a tough <laughs> so, title. So he self-published it out of his garage, took out a second mortgage on his house, Ed sold like 1.5 million copies of these books. They retail for $40. So you do the wow. math, even if there's half. I mean, this what? guy's made, you know, he's made $40, $50 million if you yeah. do the math off of, of self-publishing these books. And he towards like the Grateful Dead. You know, he's one of those guys, he goes around with a sound system. He sets up in a Hilton ballroom. 500 people come and they sell, you know, 300 bucks a head. And everybody gets books, and he just goes around and does that and makes a killing, too. You know, meanwhile, John's at, like, a Comic-Con hand-selling King Cat. You know, so, like, but both these dudes, to me, are, are punk. You know, like, they're both, they have that DIY punk spirit that the Grateful Dead had, too. You know, they're doing it, they're just doing it themselves, you know. But... Yeah, I don't have a huge opinion. I mean, the publisher thing, to me, it's still about having the muscle of distribution and getting it everywhere. And of course, the publisher takes a little bit of the risk with the printing and stuff, but that with on-demand and stuff, it's changing a lot. I mean, it'll be interesting to see where, you know, what happens with my next book, you know, whether I do some self-publishing experiments or not, it's still worth it for me to go with a major publisher. But I have friends that say I'm stupid. You know, I, I have friends that say, why, why at this point wouldn't you self-publish something and sell it for 20 bucks and keep 10 and make a killing? But for me, it's about just being patient. I'm planning on doing this for a very long time. And so I'm just sort of patient. And to be perfectly honest, I'm not very business savvy. I mean, I, I'm number savvy, but I'm not really interested in being a business person, which has always been a problem for me. You know, I didn't get into this. Like if I wanted to make money, I would have gone to business school. And in, in researching this, reading your interviews, listening to your interviews, like it's clear you are pretty business savvy, whether you're putting it into motion or not. Like you understand the levers to pull, you know? Sure. And, and, and something that when I project the lifestyle of uh, authors <laughs> into my mind, what I think the lifestyle <laughs> is, the tension I feel is this lifestyle would be great because it feels like you just get to revel in the work for months or years. You put it out and hopefully it's successful, but you don't have to be on this treadmill that it feels like I'm on as a digital creator all the time, you know, where it's like publishing something super high quality every week. But I may be projecting, and I'd love to hear what you think the lifestyle of most writers and authors is today, and if that's a trade-off that actually exists. I, I couldn't speak. I don't know that many. I mean, I, I, and they all have different business models. I mean, some writers are, are professors, you know, they, or they have day jobs. There are very few people who can really pull off 
being a full-time writer. So I don't really... Lifestyle. Oh, that's an interesting word. I mean, it's funny that you say the treadmill because, I mean, there is a sort of... There is a dailiness and a week weekliness to what I do just because there's... There's output every day, and then there's a weekly newsletter, which is a bit the big heart of what I do these days. But yeah, there's there's not there's not a whole lot of pressure. I mean, there's pressure, but most of it is internal. But for me, it's just it's just like I mean, my wife puts it this way. She's like, you just never people look at you and they say, Oh, that must be really nice, but like you're never take a break. She's like, you Everything is copy, as you know, Nora Ephron said. Every single moment of your day is you're thinking of, you know, you're taking notes, you're drawing, you know. So you're just never off. The way I think about it is everything I do with my career right now, I'd probably do anyway for free, mm. you know. So it's kind of like, I mean, the heart of what I do, I mean, I wouldn't be like, you know, I, I might not. Do I wouldn't speak for free. I wouldn't do client work for free. I wouldn't, you know, there's a lot of things I wouldn't do for free, but essentially think about the world and write things down and share them with people. Yeah, I would probably do that no matter what I was getting paid for it. So the other thing is though, there's, you know, a lot of people have asked me like, will you do like a money book? Will you do like a creative money book or whatever? I'm like, hell no. <laughs> Why would I do that? I can't speak to that. You know, that's completely dependent on who you are. And I think for me, the old fashioned, the thing about money for me, money is always about the freedom to do more work for the artist it's funny that Walt Disney is usually quoted as saying this, but you know, he's like, we don't make movies to make money. We make, uh, we make money to make more movies. Mm. And I mean, that's certainly not, I don't think that's the Disney ethos now, but you know, <laughs> I mean, we make, we make movies to make a lot of money. But um, for me, that's sort of the, that's sort of the thing. It's like the money is just to sort of float the life and keep being able to do what you're doing. But there are so many people. I mean, you know, there's so many more people you could talk to. They're so much more savvy than me. The one thing I think is really misunderstood in this culture is we glorify people with money. And that's bad because a lot of those guys, I mean, like today it just came out, you know, there was a big report on how Bezos and Musk and all those dorks, they don't pay any taxes. You know, I mean, they, they, don't, they don't pay their fair share you know, whatever, there's that. But the other thing that I've noticed is unless you have a trust fund or your parents have given you money or something, people who make money, like, they work hard at it. I mean, like, you got to really want to make money. Like, because it's, people are just handing out money. I think people have this idea that it's like, oh, it's like, there's this tension in American life where it's like, you know, people who hustle and get money, I mean, they're working hard, on the other hand, it's nothing to, it's the old uh, Dorothy Parker line. You know, if you want to know what God thinks about money, look at who he's given it to. You know, there's, and there's privilege and there's all sorts of issues around it. But I would say that, you know, on the whole, most of the people I know who are just tremendously successful, they just, they bust ass. And I don't, I'm, I'm fundamentally a lazy person. You know, I'm I'm fundamentally kind of like, I don't want to work hard. What I do, though, is that I work 
I think it was Leonard Wolf that said, you know, you do a little bit, but you do it all the time. For me, it's like I do these little chunks every day, and then those little chunks, they, they grow into something big over time. Did the pandemic change the way you think about speaking opportunities? The pandemic's been awesome for speaking. The reason is with my clients, we say, here's what it costs when it's not a pandemic. You get it half off during the pandemic over Zoom. And people have been like, well, that seems reasonable. That's great. Hmm. We've been doing like, and we get to do that. There's all this opportunity to make speaking kind of cool. It's kind of fun, you know, because usually I show up and I'll do my big show and I'll have my slides and it's, you know, keynote I'm up on stage and whatever. But here it's like, it's almost like a studio visit in a weird way. And there's all this opportunity for face-to-face Q&A. And so I actually think the speaking has been incredible during the pandemic. I've had a lot of fun. And I hope that my clients feel like they've gotten something. Most people, their reaction has been really good. But it's been great for me. I mean, I love not – I thought I was going to miss travel. My kids are still young enough that I just don't – I mean, I'd love to get away from them for a while. (laughs) Who wouldn't? But, you know, I mean, I don't really miss getting on an airplane. So everything else has been terrible. But (laughs) – Speaking's been fun because it's well, like, it oh, like there's I, some people, there's some people I could talk to on the screen. <laughs> I asked the question because I had assumed with like the major drivers of your business being book sales and speaking, yeah. I had assumed that during the pandemic, speaking got wiped out. And so I was, I was thinking that speaking was less resilient, but it sounds like you're telling me that speaking was as resilient, if not more resilient than book sales during the pandemic. Well, I think that I have been, I've always, I've never been that popular of a speaker I think I'm a good speaker. I think, you know, for people who are looking for the kind of message that I bring, I enjoy it. I like being on stage. I, it doesn't take a lot out of me. But I've never been like pulling in six figures, for example, off my speaking. I just have never done that. There are other guys that make a million dollars a year doing speaking stuff. I've just never been that because I'm not like a corporate guy. Like if I could, if I could shine up and show up at – Purina or whatever, where, you know, wherever, whatever corporation it is, if I was more corporate friendly, you know, I could be making a bigger living. It's yeah. Not. Cause you could do so, that. That is, that's not like out of the realm of possibility. You could say like, here's how you can build and leverage the creative right. muscle within your company. If I just you know, called like, it innovation, I, if you call it innovation instead of creativity, you can charge three times as much, but I don't, I like I just like going at my own pace and I just continue to feel like if I keep doing good work and I keep building my audience, then yeah, maybe you'll go speak it, whatever. But I love my clients. I mean, like, it's so nice to have clients that they come to you and they want you and you don't feel like you have to prove anything. You just bring them the good stuff. You know, that to me is really fun. But my, my natural audience is always like, like creative companies I'm great at, you know, or, or, or I've done, I, one of my favorite gigs of all time was I did an employee appreciation day at like a public library in South Carolina. Like that was like, that was one of my favorite gigs of all time, you know, stuff like that. I did a gig at PBS, which was a dream because those people are awesome. And my kid, you know, I got to meet the people who do like, PBS kids and stuff like that. So, you know, it's fun, but yeah, it's been interesting during the pandemic. I mean, sure. I'd love to get out on the road again, but 
Um, it's been cool. We've also, my agent and I have gotten very flexible and we just keep it dirt simple now. We're just like, this is what it costs. You want it? And I think people really respond to that because a lot of time in business now, you're like, let's get on a phone call and discuss our needs and blah, blah. It's like, no, this is what it costs. And if you want it, you can have it. And then we'll do all the talk. We'll talk about it. But like, this is what it is. This is what we offer. And this is what you can have it for. It's just a nice, it, it, I love it's, that. it's simplified. I've been enjoying it. I think it takes a lot of pressure off of sales too. Cause you don't go to a Starbucks and they, and they say like, well, let me send you a proposal for how <laughs> right? much this macchiato is going to be. I've pushed my agent to be like, why don't we just put a buy button up on the, on the, on the, what? no, you can't do that. You got to have me talk, you know, it's like, no, just put a buy button. This is what it costs. <laughs> Hit the button and then you get the talk. And he's like, no, you can't do that. I'm like, huh, I don't know. We could do it. And then I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> when we come back, Austin and I talk about when he knows it's time to write another book. And a little bit later, we talk about his future plans and why he doesn't pursue other opportunities outside of writing. So stick around and we'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to my conversation with Austin Cleon. Once Steal Like an Artist and Show Your Work achieved commercial success, I wondered if Austin felt pressure either internally or from his publisher to continue to publish a book every couple of years. He didn't publish Keep Going until 2019. So was he driven by a timeline? Or was he driven by an idea? How did he know when it was time to write a new book? <laughs> well, that's the great question. I mean, I look around. There's a lot of writers that shouldn't put out as many books as they do. I mean, we can be clear and real about that. And then there's me who, like, I should get off my ass and do another book. Well, you know, I, I think about, like, <laughs> sequels to movies and where it's like, yeah. this, this movie wasn't very good, but it still made money. So you're incentivized to do it. And I think a yeah. lot of writers are in the same camp. I don't do a book unless I have something to say that that's, you know, I, I really mean that. I mean, all of my books came out of feeling like there was a, there was a reason for them to exist. And the reason that keep going didn't come, came out five years after, uh, uh, show your work. I was lost. I mean, part of it is that I had kids. I mean, my oldest son, Owen is the same age as still like an artist. He's like eight, six months younger than Steel Like an Artist. So he got here, and then I wrote Show Your Work a lot of that when he was taking naps, which was horrible. <laughs> like being a young dad trying to write that book. That book is interesting because it's had a second life recently because of the pandemic because people are trying to figure out how do I grow an audience just being at home and Show Your Work is like a manual. But that book was insanely painful for me to write it was a sequel to a successful book. And so when show your work came out, I just was like, I just don't even know if I even want to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. I, this is too, it's too easy to make art and blog and give talks and just have <laughs> books are too hard, you know? So keep going came finally when I just sort of needed to read that book it, you know, it was clear I needed to do another book. It'd been long enough, sure. But, like, I needed to read Keep Going. Keep Going, I wrote at a time that I was bottomed out the way... I was bottomed out the way I think a lot of people got bottomed out by the pandemic. Like, the pandemic felt very familiar to me because I felt like I'd already been there in, like, late 2016. That was kind of already... In what way? 
Well, to me, the 2016 election and the tone of the country, it really felt like, okay, this is over. Like America, this is just, America's falling apart. Like culturally, it wasn't like professional burnout. Well, it was both. It was both. It was, it was the election felt to me like the, the, it was like watching a culture in decline, just the, the way that all unfolded. And then, you know, career wise, it just felt, I've just felt like I was hollowed out. So I was like, what am I going to do? And, and keep going was really the result of me just reading, I, I found the right books to read. I found the right people. That is the thing about reading is everybody, and this is not an original idea, very few of mine are, <laughs> you know, every, everything you're going through, there's somebody who's written about it, you know, pretty much anything you're going through, even now, you know, even as crazy as everything is, there's, people have been writing about the end of the world since the world began, you know, so it's like there's always something to read. And I got lucky with my reading and found a new habit. I started writing way more regularly. I started like a daily journal and I started blogging again. I kind of quit blogging for a while because I thought, oh, I'm a fancy author. I shouldn't like just blog. I have to write essays on Medium or whatever bullshit I thought, <laughs> you know, whatever. And then someone asked me to give a talk in San Francisco, this Bond conference. And I said, I'll do the talk. You got to put me on last. I got to go last. I got to be the closer. I'll do the talk, but you got to put me as the closer because I got the perfect thing for you. And then I wrote the How to Keep Going talk, and then that became the book. In a way, Keep Going was a return to steal like an artist. Show Your Work was very self-consciously trying to be a book, even to the point where I was doing a little bit more of the Malcolm Gladwell type of like, let me tell you a story, and then a lesson, and then a a story, a study, and then a lesson, infinite repeat. You know, I was like trying to, okay, well, let me write a real book now. Keep Going was very much like Last Crusade. It was like, you know, you had Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, would have been Steel Like an Artist, Temple of Doom. That Show Your Work is my Temple of Doom. Not that it's miserable to watch, but it was miserable to make. And then Last Crusade is like, hey, let's go back to essentially what worked before with a new, you know, new stuff. And I was thinking very intently about a trilogy because I wanted to wrap up these books. It's like, I don't want to do these square books forever. I want, I feel like this book, it's grown out of the last book and all these books talk to each other and I wanted to wrap it up. And so keep going. I was like very, very conscious of it being a trilogy, of it being the last book in a trilogy. Well, what is the future of the Austin Kleon creative empire here? What, what are you excited about working towards now that the trilogy is wrapped? Well, it's weird. I want to look forward, but the thing I'm doing now is the Steel Like an Artist 10th anniversary is coming up. So <laughs> I'm actually writing a new afterword for the book and I'm doing some of the design work for the, for the, it's, it's going to be fun. We're, we're working on something that I can't talk about right now, but it's going to be in a new format, which is going to be really fun. And then, then, you know, I, I am very torn about the newsletter world right now. I have this newsletter that I've been doing since 2013 that I love. It's the heart of what I do. 
there's part of me that wants to do a paid tier. Once my fan, you know, if my fans want to hear from me, do some sort of illustrated essay each week that, you know, and I'm sort of excited at that idea, but I'm also, I feel like everyone's getting the fatigue. It's like people are really starting to be like, how many sub stacks can I subscribe to? <laughs> you know? And so the thing I'm working very hard on is the next book the next book is just, it's too raw to even talk about right now, but every artist deals with this. My audience loves me for a very particular thing. I'm interested in this other thing that's over here. So there are choices as an artist. You can figure out if there's a middle ground where you could bring them over with you. You can't pull everybody over to this place that you're interested in. You know, I remember Questlove of the Roots saying one time, we just lose half of our audience every every album. You know, when they were doing albums, they just knew they were going to lose half their audience because they were going to chase after this thing. You know, the one the one thing I feel really good about as a as a writer is that my output, I can do whatever I want on a daily basis. If I want to make art, I make art and I put it online. People are like, oh, that's cool. And then I can use it in a blog post or whatever it is. Books are going to have long lives, hopefully. So you got to be a little bit more strategic about books. It's really funny because some people write books. are like, well, if I write a book about it, no one will ask me about it anymore. It's like, that's actually the opposite. If you write a good book about something, you're going to be talking about it for five years. So like, you got to figure out what you want to think about for two to five years or whatever. And that's the book you have to do. So some people really like writing and really like writing books. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I love reading. <laughs> you want reading. to be a writer. You I, said you wanted uh, to be a writer yeah, from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to be, what I, what I realized in hindsight is that I wanted output. I wanted expression. I wanted output. I wanted a platform. Writing books, at least the way that I've had to do them, is a pain in the ass. I don't like the whole process. And there are people who talk to me about self-publishing. I'm like, yeah, that does sound pretty good. I don't like having to get people on board with vision. But that's true of any artist who needs external machinery. I mean, like Steven Soderbergh can't just show up and be like, I want to do this movie about whatever. And they're like, sure, here's $20 million, you know, whatever. Everybody's sales... If you're not just a painter or a collage artist or something, there's always, if you need any kind of machinery uh, or distribution with your work, you're always going to be selling somebody on it, you know? And so you got to get comfortable with that right away. Books are slow. It, the process is very slow and painful for me. So I don't want to dissuade people who are listening if you want to be writers. I mean, it's just like... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm just a grumpy old person at this well, point. But you hear the quote that uh, painters like to paint, writers like to have written. Yeah, yeah, that's probably, I mean, you know, I love write, writing. It, there's so many different kinds of writing. That is the thing that people no, don't talk about enough. There's writing books, which is a very particular kind of writing. And then there's just, there's writing tweets. There's writing a journal. There's writing a blog post. They're completely different things. And they have different kinds of energies, you know. For me, books just mean too much to me. I love to read so much. And my life is books. And I love them too much to put out a bad one. I can't let my, I, it's too, it means too much to me. And so the stakes are very, very high. 
for me personally. And and particularly now that I've gotten old enough that I feel like I have a certain skill set. I mean, I'm not the best writer. I'm not the best book designer. I'm not the best illustrator. But like, as far as people who do those things, like I feel like I'm pretty good now. And so there's a, you want to challenge yourself. But you know, it's slow. It can be painful. It ain't like getting up in front of a comedy club and you tell a joke and somebody laughs or they don't. You know, it's like you do this thing and then you got to wait until it's published and see how people react to it. You know, it's like it's just it doesn't have the feedback loop of even doing like a weekly podcast or something. Right. You know, maybe we're coming back around to that question you asked earlier. What's it like to do something that's, uh, you know, books versus like something like a podcast? It's like, well, the feedback loop is so much bigger and longer. You can get lost a lot quicker. You know, you can you can really lose yourself in that in that loop, especially if you stay out of it for a while. Like I should always start a new book right after I do the last one, because if I sit too long, it's like I don't want to do a book. Why would I do that? (laughs) (laughs) But I love books. I mean, I love I love it. I mean, they're they're the heart of my life, and so I just take them really seriously. Before I let Austin go, I had to ask him why at this point. He doesn't expand into other mediums or digital products. With four successful books, several keynotes that he's prepared, and an engaged audience, it seems like he could have a ton of optionality into things like courses, merchandise, workshops, and more. I'm one of those guys who has read too much Henry David Thoreau, and I believe that every job you take on costs something. So... To do business costs you something. And every, you know, people are always all the time, they're like, why don't you sell merch? Because it would cost me time. Why don't you do online courses? Because it would cost me something. <laughs> you know, all the time, there's always a cost to doing business. And it's very easy when you build an audience up to spend all your time doing things that are lucrative that you don't want to do. And so it's it's finding that balance of either finding the right crew. The people, the creative people I've seen that have been the most successful, they usually find like a business partner or they find like a crew that can help them. I'm not interested in being anyone's boss. I'm just mm. not, that doesn't sound fun to me. I just want to do what I want to do all day. And that's why I'm not living in Malibu. <laughs> You know, it's just, I just, I like doing what I do and it's not necessarily the most lucrative thing, but philosophically, I like to keep my overhead low. I'm married to a woman who has the same values. We try to live as cheaply as we can and we keep our overhead as low as we can in Austin, Texas with this real estate market, (laughs) you know, and, and we try to... We value time over money, you know, and so it's that thing. Money costs, you know, it costs you something making money. And so you just have to make sure that the transaction is worth it. Philosophically, I feel like that's the way to go. Optimize for the most enjoyment of your time because it's the much more scarce resource than money. It's the thing that money's supposed to get you. You know, but it never does. It just, you know, once beyond a certain 
Now, of course, this is an incredibly privileged point, but you know, beyond a certain point, when you can make your days look the way you want them to look, money just doesn't, you know, it's, you can get more stuff. I live in a nice neighborhood in Austin. Like I do. I live in like a nice, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta be like a middle class these days to live here. You gotta be like a lawyer or, you know, you gotta, or, or just a tech person or whatever it is. And I know that some of my neighbors see me like out with the kids <laughs> or like taking a walk and they wonder like, well, what, what's he do all day? <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes I look at my neighbors, I'm like, you know, if you took, if you didn't have such a big house or, you know, you didn't drive three trucks, maybe you, you know, maybe you wouldn't have to work so much either. You know what I mean? So there's always yeah. that, there's always that funny thing in life. And, you know, you go down a path career wise and it comes with, uh, that's another Thorovian thing, you know, beware of all endeavors that require new clothing. <laughs> <laughs> mm. you know i can keep my i don't have any suits i literally don't own a suit i mean i <laughs> i would have bought one to go to a funeral but it's the pandemic which is dark but that's yeah. the reality the only time i'll need a suit from now on is if i go to a funeral but you know it's that kind of it's that kind of thing it's a it's a lucky life though i've just been i've just been really lucky you know so it's it's trying not to squander that luck it's trying to take that luck and say, here's what I'm going to do with it. Here's the kind of work I'm going to, I'm going to do something that matters to me that I think can be useful or beautiful for other people. And that's what you try to do. This was a really fun interview to host. Austin was so kind and generous with his time and ideas. It felt easy to talk to him, even though we'd never talked before. Not only was it really easy to talk with him, but he made his success seem attainable to you and me too. Sure, it will take hard work, but there's no special sauce, other than maybe catching a wave or two of good luck. If you want to learn more about Austin, you can visit his website, austincleon.com, or find him on social media, at austincleon. Links to both are in the show notes. Thanks to Austin for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and Brian Skeel for creating our music. Did you know that every week I send an email with each episode to tell the story of how I booked the guest? People seem to love it. And you can get that email by subscribing to my newsletter at jklaus.com emails. A link to that is in the show notes as well. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.